right? What would be the cost of not buying food, for example? Well, you would starve. You would starve to death. You would be dead. Deadness is a very high cost thing, and human beings are very motivated to avoid that cost. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the All the Responsibility, None of the Authority podcast, episode number 306. This is the podcast for product managers, product marketers, innovators, entrepreneurs, everyone who wants to make better products and get them to market and make the world a better place. I'm your host, Nels Davis. I'm the author of The Secret Product Manager Handbook, the book and the blog of the same name. This is the first of two episodes about what I call the value inequality. A way of thinking about your customer's perception of risk versus cost and the value of your product. And just a content note, this podcast and the next one are the audio of two Facebook Live presentations I did earlier this year. There are a few references to things you can see on the screen, in particular, a formula for the value inequality. And you can see the formula on the value inequality posting on my website, which you can find in the show notes at alltheresponsibility.com slash 306. But you don't really need to see the formula to get the point, I hope. And also, if I can just mention, I call it math, and I give you a formula. But it's not a real math equation. It's really just a mental model, a way to think about pricing and value and all those things. Now, if you like this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you can click the like or share button in your podcast app or rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and recommendations really help other people find the podcast. Now, one of the things that I found as I have studied product management and you know marketing and all the things that are related to product management, because since product management is related to everything, I think there's ideas out there that maybe they're obvious, but I am not finding them written down anywhere or illustrated anywhere. That's one of the things that I do in the book, actually, is I start to write down ideas that at least to me seem obvious. I don't know if they seem obvious to everyone else, but that I haven't found written down. And one of them is this thing that I call the value inequality, which is really about how to think about pricing. So if you go onto the web, you find a lot of people talking about, or you look at textbooks about marketing, you, you find people talking about pricing just in various forms. But I don't think that a lot of them get to the core idea that you have to think about when you're pricing your product. And to me, this is this key concept, which is, dependent of independent of any pricing methodology you might be using really the customer needs to get a lot more value from your product than what they're paying and there's a there's a reason for this now if you think about things that you buy personally right you're you think about well what would be the cost of not having this thing that I'm buying right what would be the cost of not buying food for example well you would starve you would starve to death you would be dead deadness is a very high cost thing and human beings are very motivated to avoid that cost. Um, on the other hand, if you're thinking, well, should I buy this steak or should I buy this hamburger, assuming you're a meat eater, sometimes you might say, well, the value of this steak is not sufficiently higher than the value of this hamburger, so I'm going to buy the cheaper thing because that's what I, that's the value that I'm going to get. Uh, for example, <laughs> I used to be a person that didn't know how to cook steak. And so whenever I bought a steak, it would be a waste because I would cook it and it wouldn't be that good. I've since learned to cook steaks, and so now I value steaks much higher because my ability to actually 
get a good meal out of a steak if I buy one, and which I didn't used to have. And actually, that relates to the thing that I'm going to talk about in the value inequality because the components that go into the value that the customer gets, in, in this case, in the case of a steak, how good a steak I get for my dinner, um, it's, it really has a lot of impact. It's not just the cost. There's other things that come into the calculation. So I've come up with this idea that's called the value inequality. And because I was a math major, I like having mathy things. This is a very simple inequality. It says that the value the customer gets when their problem is solved has to be much greater than the, the sum of what they paid, that's just the dollar value, plus the risk that it won't do the thing that they want. And for me, this was the risk of making a steak that wasn't going to be delicious, versus the cost of making the change to your solution. And this isn't a, necessarily a challenge with a steak, but it might be a challenge if you're selling software to somebody and you want them to switch from using their old software to your software, right? What's the cost of that change? And then the opportunity cost, what else could I be spending that money on, right? So if I buy a steak instead of a hamburger, maybe I would rather be spending that money on um, a game for my com a computer game, right? So that's the, that's the opportunity cost, you know, a steak, I don't know if those are comparable, but you get the idea, right? There's, there's other things I can spend my money on, and maybe those other things are more important or more appealing uh, to me than, than the cost of the thing that I'm considering buying. And I may just say, well, you know what? I'm not going to buy a steak this week. I'm going to buy a computer game because I want to go play some computer games. So that's the basic idea behind the value inequality. So you want to then think about, well, how does this impact pricing? Well, it, it means a couple different things. One is it means you have to understand what the value is that the customer is going to get. And so if you start to think about how you can charge more for your product, in other words, how to make P bigger, and, and of course there's some things you have to think about when you're setting prices, like how much you need to make as a company in order to be profitable, right? You can't sell a product continually for less than it costs you to create and produce and deliver that product because you can't stay in business, as you all know. So we always have to make P, the, the price that we charge, big enough to support our business. And so this, you can think about the value inequality. You can flip the terms around a little bit. You can also say, well, here's how much I have to charge in order to make money. Am I going to deliver that much value? So that's another way to use the value inequality. But in particular, if you want to think about, well, how can I make more money from my product? Or how can I make enough money? And there's different, obviously, you, you have this inequality that's got all these terms in it, and you can start working with the values in the terms. So the first thing to think about is if you can make the value that you deliver bigger, then you can charge more. Because it says that value has to be much greater than the price plus the risk plus the change management plus the opportunity cost. So if you can make the value bigger, that means you can, you can have more leeway on all those other terms. So that mean, what does making the value bigger mean? It means either solving a bigger problem with your product, finding a segment for whom the problem that your product solves is more urgent, something like that. So those are the types of things you can do to increase the value of your product. And there's a lot of other things, and you know that's just a sketch. You know, either a bigger problem or or the right segment that's willing to pay more because the problem is worth more to them. And you know, I always talk about 
in the context of the secret product manager handbook, I talk about the fundamental product management model, which is that we find market problems, we create solutions for those problems, and we take the solutions to market. And so this is all about that first part, finding the market problems. And of course, I also always have to caveat that they don't necessarily have to be market problems. They have to be unmet demand in the market what, in whatever form. A lot of times that's problems, uh, particularly if you're th thinking about business or enterprise software, which is where I uh, specialize. That is typically what people are looking People are looking for solutions to a problem, a business problem that they have, and they, they're the business problem is costing them something. Sometimes even in enterprise software, it could be an opportunity that they would like to take advantage of. Not exactly a problem, but they'd like to. there's an opportunity out there that if they can help their customers realize that opportunity or achieve that opportunity, then uh, the tool that helps them do that can you can make some money from. I don't exactly have an example for that off the top of my head, but I'll think about it. At any rate, so making the problem bigger, finding a better unmet opportunity, unmet need, unmet desire, whatever it might be. Those are one way to uh, enable you to charge more for your product or charge enough, whether if that's the challenge. But there's other other ways. Obviously, you now now that you have are thinking in terms of this inequality, you can start thinking about, well, what are the other what impact can I have on the other terms? And one of them is, can I reduce the risk of this product? Now, if you're an enterprise software like me, one of the big challenges for people selling enterprise software is convincing our prospects that our product will actually do the thing that they need it to do. Because I don't know if you've ever bought business software before, but you have often found, and there's certainly story after story, that, oh, it didn't really solve our problem. It was a big failure. It was a waste of money. It was money down a rat hole. We kept spending money on it. We spent more and more money, and we never got the value. That is a very, very common story for not just for business software, but for enterprise products of all kinds. And so the risk of spending your money on something that doesn't solve the problem is very, very high for enterprise software. And it's very high for all kinds of software. I'm always trying to get good deals on, you know, software for my Mac, for example, you know, I, I get something and I think, oh, this is going to solve some problem that I have. Like I would need to make some nice, pretty web pages, let's say. And so I buy a package that has some, a web page builder in it. And it's like, oh, I cannot figure out how to work this. Everything I make looks terrible. It doesn't make any sense. It goes in the garbage, right? That was a waste of money. And I, of course, I'm very loath to spend my money on things that, that I am not fully confident that I'm going to get the value from. So one of the things we can do to help people feel that they're getting the value that they need from our software is to reduce their risk a lot. And how do you do, how do you reduce their risk? Well, there's lots of ways. I have a whole series of articles on my blog on the secretpmhandbook.com that talk about go to market. And one of the, the big things you do in go to market is you make sure you understand the, the prospect's problem very well. And then you make sure that you have good stories about how other customers have solved similar problems with your application. So that is a way that you can address risk to some degree. You can use references, you can use stories, you can say, oh, well, let me have, let me t have you talk to a customer who had a similar problem to yours and how they used our product to successfully solve that problem. So those are, that's one way of reducing risk. Other ways of reducing risk just allow the customer, the prospect to do a trial 
trial can often reduce a risk. Proof of concepts, that's what all of those things that happen in enterprise software before the sale, and in fact, a lot of software now where you can do a free trial or you can try before you buy, those are all about reducing risk. And the risk is this product won't do the thing I need it to do. And so I need a little bit more proof before I'm willing to put my money down. And that, as I say, it can happen. It's not just enterprise types of products that allow you to take that kind of um, risk mitigation step. So doing trials, doing proofs of concept. Now you have to sometimes be careful in that if your product is complex, you may actually need to do a guided proof of concept. You may have to have somebody from your team who understands how to make the product work effectively be involved in that proof of concept because sometimes a product is complex enough that you can't just let the customer try it out. Or there may be other reasons that they can't just try it out. Um, you know, just in terms of there's so many different things that can happen. And in fact, the product that I currently work on, which is an, an HR as a service product, it's very hard to have customers try it, try it out in a trial because part of what it does is it pays the employees' paychecks. <laughs> and so you can't just trial that. That's that's not a thing you can do. So that's one of the one of our challenges is that we then that means we have to rely much more on references and things like that. And so we do that and success stories and things like that. Another thing you can do is to reduce the cost of change. So again, most enterprise software, you have this challenge where you're probably replacing something else. You're probably replacing a system that already works. So for example, if you think about putting in a, a sales management, CRM system, customer relationship management system for the sales organization, well, the sales organization is already doing something uh, in terms of how they manage the pipeline and manage sales. And so you need to make sure that when you, your software comes in or your product comes in, that you have a way to make it reasonable for the customer to easily transition to using your solution. And so that may mean things like, well, you have to do some training. You have to do some data migration. You have to suck in the data of the old system and make it work with the new system you maybe need to make it really easy to use. So one, oftentimes one of the great value propositions for a new product coming in to replace another product is that it's easier to use. Oftentimes, if you're replacing a manual system, for example, think, imagine a, or a, a system with single users. So imagine you have a sales team of five to 10 people and each of them is currently using their own contact management system. And they may all even be using different ones. Well, that's going to be a big problem. It means that all of the information that these salespeople gather is pretty much their own data, and it's not doesn't become enterprise knowledge. And it's useful for it to become enterprise knowledge, um, you know, so you can pass sales around and things like that. And so, you if you're bringing in a new CRM, then you have to do a couple of things. You have to say, oh, I'm going to suck in the data that you have already. I'm going to give you some ability to do reporting across these multiple systems. What works what were currently silos for each salesperson. And so maybe the sales manager now has more visibility. You're going to want to probably talk about how the salespeople can collaborate better uh, to sell bet to sell more so that they'll be more successful because you have to make sure that the salespeople buy into this as well. 
and uh, you probably want to give them a little bit of training. But if you have a nice ease of use story in addition, that's going to make it even easier because, of course, we all want our software to be, or our tools, whatever solution we use, to be easier to use and to use new technology that makes it better and, and more appealing. And then finally, of course, you have this opportunity cost challenge. What this really means is that, in general, you need to be selling a solution for one of the most important problems that the prospect has, at least in the domain that you're selling in, right? So businesses have lots of really high-priority problems, but the sales organization probably has a handful of really high-priority problems, and they have a lot, they have dozens of lower-priority problems. And if your solution is, is about one of these lower-priority problems, you might not be able to get the attention of that sales organization at all. Now, the business as a whole may have a lot of other high-priority problems, but you can always focus in on a particular part of the business that your solution becomes a high-priority solution for. So the idea being the business as a whole has, has dozens of, of problems, but the sales organization has a subset of those problems, and if you solve one of those, the top ones in the sales organization, even if it's maybe not one of the top ones for the organization as a whole, you can successfully sell that. But it does have to be a high-priority problem. So you know the rule of thumb is make sure you're solving one of your prospects' top three problems. And that will make it much easier to sell against this uh, opportunity cost issue because they're looking for solutions for all of those problems. And if you come in and take money away from their ability to get a solution to one of their top three problems, you're probably not going to make you're not probably not going to make much money. The other question is: What if there are problem, products out there that are like yours that solve a similar problem, but they are cheaper than yours? What do you have to do then? Well. Again, you have to, you can go to, back to the value and equality, and you can see what the options are for your for your tweaking of the values in your pricing or in your value proposition. So again, you have the same sort of ways of dealing with it that you just that I just talked about when you're raising the price, and that is what you're really trying to do is change the basis of competition. So you have to be able to say, here's the thing that we do that reduces your risk or reduces the cost of change, or gives you more value that justifies the fact that we charge more. How do you do that? Well, you either find a bigger problem, or you expand the scope of the problem, or you, you solve the problem better. You, you create a better solution to, this, to the existing problem. Or you reduce risk compared to the competitor, right? Uh, I mean, that's often the case that if you're in a market where you're a low-priced offer, and you have a larger company that's a higher-priced offer, Oftentimes what that company does is not offer more functionality. They offer lower risk. They say, oh, you know what? We've been in business a long time. We have lots and lots of successful customers. We have many, many experts in our product. And so you are going to have a lower risk that our product isn't going to work because we've proven over and over again that it works. You know that, that would be what they would say against you as a competitor. Now, you could say, well, that, those guys are big dinosaurs. They're very set in their ways. We're going to do a much better job of working with you. That's a change management argument. And, of course, you're going to spend less money on us, which apl applies both to you know, the total value that they have to get. They don't have to get quite as much. And it also applies to the opportunity cost question. right? So if you're the low lower cost offer, then you might say, well, we're going to make change management easier for you than the big dinosaur who's going to stick you, get, get you stuck into something. 
and we are going to allow you to spend some of your money on something else. You don't have to spend it all on the solution to this problem. And so that means that overall the value you're going to get is comparable to the to that bigger competitor or even higher. But you're going to get more value because of that. You know, and you often are going to say things like to the, the reduce risk, you're going to say and opportunity cost. You're going to say, "Oh, and because you're one of our early customers, we're going to listen very carefully to what you want us to do." And we will respond much faster than the big competitor. So those are the types. Those when you when you start thinking about how those argue, what those arguments that you might be having with a prospect or discussions, that's how you th- can think about structuring them with respect to this value and equality. Now, the value and equality is probably not something that you would explicitly go out to the cus- prospect and talk about, but you would definitely talk about the components. You would definitely talk about well, let me show you how we reduce the risk of your buying our product, right? And you might say, I know you might say, I know that uh, getting a new product like this, trying to implement a new solution, you may have been burned before, and so you're really risk averse. Let me talk to you about how l- low the risk is of going with our product. And you might say, oh, and I know you have other problems that you want to solve with the same money. Let me talk to you about why this is a better use of your money than some of the other opportunities. Or you may want to say, well, I know that that you've tried other products before uh, and you haven't been able to get the organization to take them on. You know, the change management never worked. Let me talk to you about how we have we deal with change management and why change management is not that big a deal and how we make sure to suck in all your existing data, blah, blah, blah. All of those stories, I think it's useful to, to sort of know with a particular story which of these points you're trying to hit. And you can be hitting multiple points as well with a single story, right? You can you can be hitting a risk reduction story, hitting risk reduction along with change management risk reduction in the same story. And so, and you also, of course, sometimes you're not going to just call those out and say, hey, I know you're averse to risk. You might instead say, hey, let me show you how a customer like you has successfully implemented this, this solution very quickly and where everybody really loves the outcome, you know, and that, because that again covers risk, it covers uh, change management, but you do it in a more subtle way. So that's the value inequality. It's, I really like this concept of the value inequality. As I say, I don't think it's, I don't think anything in this story is shocking. I don't think that you probably learned anything you didn't know before, but I'm hoping that putting it in this form makes it easier to understand or think about what your levers are as product managers, and of course, as marketers, whatever you do, to influence not only how much you can charge, but how to tell the story that helps customers get the value from your solution that they deserve to get, and of course, you're trying to deliver. I hope you enjoyed that overview of the value and equality, and I hope it gave you a new mental model for thinking about pricing and value and risk and the customer's perception of risk for your products and even if you're pitching a project idea or something like that. You know, with the value and equality in your mental toolbox, you'll become better at persuasion because you know the types of things you need to persuade people about, and you'll become more confident in general in pitching your product. Now, I have another podcast coming up on the value and equality, also based on a Facebook live video, specifically about how to use it to help you strategize about internal persuasion. 
such as trying to get funding for a new project, a new product initiative or a new project, or some research that you might want to do. So that's going to, that's coming up soon on the podcast. For more information and to find links to some of the resources I've mentioned, check the show notes at alltheresponsibility.com slash 306. And you can find links to all of my videos there as well, including my new live series, which I'm now doing on YouTube on Monday nights at 7.30 p.m. Pacific time. If you want to join me there live, you can find the Secret Product Manager Handbook YouTube channel by searching on YouTube or by going to my blog and finding the link. If you like this episode, again, please consider rating and reviewing it in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I encourage you to share it with your friends who can use tips on product management, marketing, innovation, sales, and persuasion. And, you know, my feeling is we all need to get better at that all the time. I also wanted to mention my upcoming online course on persuasion. For more information on that, to sign up to be notified when it's available, probably Q2 of 2019, and to get a little handout on persuasion tips, you can go to secretpmhandbook.com persuasion. I'll put that link in the show notes as well. And until next episode, this is Nels Davis. Thanks for listening and signing off for now. Bye-bye. We have ignition.